Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, thanks. Thank you for responding. Uh, so today we're talking about, uh, we're continuing our series called Perver- The Proverbial Life. And this morning we're looking at um, something that's actually really closely tied with wisdom, which is folly, proverbial folly. And the reason why we're spending some of our time on this is because much of the counsel in the book of Proverbs is to live a wise life by avoiding folly or avoiding foolishness. So in some sense, you are wise when you avoid foolish things. You demonstrate you have wisdom when you demonstrate you can avoid foolishness. And so there's, there's a close tie between wisdom and folly. Um, but to really understand a bit about what folly is, we need to have sort of a, a refreshment of the, the idea of what wisdom is. Um, and that starts uh, by looking at what Proverbs is trying to say and what Proverbs is not trying to say, but also to recognize that Israel uh, had a really rich wisdom tradition. So there are three books that we would classify in the Bible as wisdom literature. That's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes and Job. And Solomon, King Solomon, we talked about last week, is this sort of fountainhead of all of Israel's wisdom, sort of the tradition of passing along these things comes from Solomon. And so a lot of the Proverbs are ascribed to him, but there's there's a way in which we read Proverbs that becomes really important because it can be easy to look at the book of Proverbs and read it as promises. Um, And that's because a lot of what Proverbs says sounds like a promise. It says, if you do this, then this will be the result. For example, uh, Proverbs 22.6 says that if you train up a child in the way that they should go, then they won't depart from it. And sometimes that's true, but not always. Uh, There's another proverb that um, that says, this one we could probably all quote from memory, three, five through six. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. But reality speaks often to something very different from what Proverbs promises, if we read it that way. And uh, that's not actually what Proverbs is trying to do. So Ecclesiastes and Job deal a lot of what happens when life doesn't look the way we expect it to look, or life doesn't go how we expect it to look based off these, uh, these things that God is t- telling us. Um, but the book of Proverbs uh, is more like a book of probabilities, Uh, There is a sense in which it is the accumulated wisdom of the people of Israel with Solomon kind of acting as the fountainhead of wisdom that is being passed along from one generation to the next. And really, if we're even going to start to talk about the topic of what's a foolish thing to do and what's a wise thing to do, we have to look at the format of Proverbs. Proverbs is, is the first nine chapters. Sometimes you can read Proverbs and, and have a hard time finding some structure, but the first nine chapters are all speeches from a father to a son. An older generation to a younger generation, instructing them in their experience and wisdom being passed along down there. And if we were to at least stop at this moment and say, what is a wise thing to do? What's a wise way to live your life? What's a foolish way to live your life? It is foolish to not seek out wisdom and counsel from an older generation who has experience. It's also foolish to not seek out, for the older generation to not seek out and give their wisdom to the younger generation. And that can be a very difficult thing. The tendency for younger people is to say, well, the older generations just don't understand our culture today. And so why would I seek out their wisdom? It's outdated and old. The tendency for older generations is to look at the younger generation and say, they don't want to hear it anyway, so why would I give it? Um, But really the call and the model that we see in Proverbs is that it's incredibly necessary for those who have gone before, who have experienced God's, God in their life to pass along what they've learned. But I, I would say that the key to this is through humility, Humility on both parts. Darren talked last week about this idea that uh, we're, we're supposed to pursue wisdom with our life. And the temptation in the pursuit of wisdom is to get to a spot where we believe we have arrived at a wise life and then we can now pass it along. But the idea is that we, are, we have never arrived. 
in terms of this journey of discovering wisdom. Uh, and the humility of the younger generation to look forward to, the, to look back and say, we desperately need help, and I can't do this on my own. Um, I, I speak from personal experience because one of the best ways that I've, I've learned sort of this model is with, I meet pretty regularly with this guy who goes to our church, his name is Jeff. And Jeff and I started meeting because we both enjoy coffee uh, and we both enjoy hiking. And so a lot of our conversation sort of circles around those types of things. And whenever one of us gets like a new bag of coffee, we usually email the other person to meet up. And that is sort of this kind of natural relationship that stirred forward. But what I found is that I benefit so much from this relationship because Jeff is a man who's been following Jesus for years for years and has modeled humility, not only in the way that he communicates what he's learned and communicates about his life, but humility in that he asks for my insight and my wisdom and, and values what I have to say. And I would say there's an onus on every generation to seek out the other, to seek out relationship. You met, you probably met someone who's from a different generation this morning in that time we had to connect with each other. It is a wise thing to pursue each other and learn from each other, especially for the younger generation to look back to the older and say, what can I learn from you? I will say, though, the best way to do that is through relationship. The information that I hear from Jeff is far better communicated across a coffee table or across a living room table or dining table than it is from a pedestal or from a soapbox. People are far more likely to receive wisdom and insight from other people if there's a groundwork of relationship that's there. So in terms of wise living and foolish living, wise living is seeking out counsel. Foolish living is saying that you know everything. Um... The book of Proverbs says a lot about what wise living is and what foolish living is. And we could spend really this morning looking at every nuance of what it says the fool does or the foolish person does. But we're going we're gonna to go a little bit broader. Um, but first we need to look at uh, wisdom as far as the, the Hebrew language. So the word for wisdom, that, which we translate into the English word wisdom in Hebrew, is called hokmah. And hokmah is... Um, it's what Solomon asked for, wisdom. He became a wise person. And when we think wisdom, we typically think intellectual activity. And that's not necessarily wrong. Solomon had the ability to make decisions, think deeply about things, and, and bring those to action. But Darren said last week that wisdom is sort of this idea of skillful living with, with the commitment and the character to act in obedience. And that's, that's not just a, a concept that he just pulled out of nowhere. Actually, in the book of Exodus chapter 31, the people who built the tabernacle, the place, God's dwelling place, and all the priestly garments and all these different things were said to be filled with a spirit of hokmah, spirit of wisdom and skill. And so there is a sense in which wisdom is very carefully tied to the things that you do and think and decide to, decide to do, but also the act and the ways in which you go about doing stuff. It's, it's this idea that living a wise life is sort of a skillful way of going about the world. Um, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom, so it's written from a father to a son, and so to aid sort of the, the description of how he's passing on this information, the father personifies wisdom as a woman and says she's something to be desired. She's awesome. You should want to be with her. And so uh, the way wisdom is personified is as a woman. She speaks often, and wisdom is often spoken about through the first couple chapters of wisdom. But in chapter 8, uh, Lady Wisdom grabs a microphone, and she says a little bit about, them, about herself. So turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8, and let's hear what, what Lady Wisdom has to say about herself. Um, Lady Wisdom, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. This is Lady Wisdom speaking. She says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, at the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth. 
Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle upon the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea to its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Sometimes I think we can pursue wisdom for the sake of wisdom. But it's helpful, I think, to understand that what we're actually after is an attribute of God. Wisdom, in this sense, is God's attribute. And it's something that he wove into the fabric of the universe. Wisdom saying she was there when God created the world. She's a part of everything that he designed. Um, I, uh, like most young, trying to be hip young men, I've gotten into something called woodworking. You might have heard of it. Uh, it's really fun. I enjoy it. And you can see, if you walk into my house, you can sort of see the progression of my skills. And like, I'm not, I'm very far from a master craftsman, but I, I can do more than just nail two boards, two boards together. Um, but in woodworking, there's, there's, you learn sort of along the way that it's kind of inherently dangerous. Um, they're called power tools for a reason. A power tool can, has the power to like help you or the power to really kill you. So power tools are, are really cool. But one of the things you learn in woodworking is that um, most, most woods that you work with have a very like, unique or, or firm ingrained line of wood grain. And so it's usually very um, consistent. It usually goes straight. And so when you're working with wood, you try to go along the grain rather than against the grain in most of the things that you do. So there's this machine called a thickness planer, and it, it's meant to just thin down a piece of wood so that it gets to the appropriate thickness that you want. And when you're sending a piece through a thickness planer, the blades are going this way, and you want to send it along the grain. You're not supposed to send it across the grain. Going across the grain leaves you in a position where um, a couple things can happen. One, because the fibers of the wood are going in the opposite way of the direction of the blades, it can tear out your piece, tear out parts of it, and leave like chunks and divots in it. And that could ruin what you're trying to work on. It could damage your machine because it creates more resistance. And most times woodworking material and machines are pretty expensive. Uh, And also it has the possibility of sending that piece of wood back at you. Um, so it's very dangerous. But the idea of wisdom and folly is that God has sort of put in this, this ingrained pattern, woven in a wise path for people to follow. And to be a wise person is to tap into that path, going with the grain of how God has designed this world. And to be a foolish person, an unwise person, is to go against the grain of how God has, has designed the world. Um, so... Wisdom and folly are sort of hand in hand. The idea that you would live a wise life is that you would begin to understand and see what foolish things are and say no to them. Um, in chapter nine, uh, in chapter nine, we meet Lady Folly. Folly is also personified as a woman, and, and she hasn't spoken up until this moment. This is the first time she speaks, and she has something really interesting to say. Um, but before we even get into what she has to say, it's important to understand what she's what ultimately wisdom, the choice between wisdom and folly is, because it's not a choice between a good decision and a bad decision. The, the author of Proverbs says in verse 18 about the young man who follows Lady Folly, he says, he does not know that, that the dead are there. He doesn't know that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That's, that's a poetic way of saying the people who follow folly are choosing death. And really the choice between wisdom and folly and discerning what is a wise life and a foolish life is not as simple as saying it's a, it's a choice between good decisions and bad decisions. The, the stakes are a little bit higher than that. Discovering a wise life versus saying no to a foolish life is a choice between life and death. 
And, and that's, that's, that's the gospel. Jesus is said to be the embodiment of God's wisdom and to follow him is a wise thing to do and to not follow him leads to death. So really, the, the stakes are a little bit higher, but uh, wisdom and folly both have things to say. Um, and let's look really quickly at that. So in the very beginning, it says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her, her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come and eat of my bread. Now, the crazy thing is that the woman of folly says the exact same thing. In verse 16, it says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. So a little bit of what they're offering is different, but the message of what wisdom and folly are offering this young man are exactly the same. We were in a teaching team meeting uh, and one of our staff members commented, she said, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. And the reason why it's terrifying is because that makes our job as followers of Jesus harder to discern what is the wise path and what is the foolish path. It's not always easy to figure out, okay, what is a wise decision and what is a foolish decision? Um, There's a little bit of insight we can gain about how folly works and how wisdom works just by what they offer, where they're coming from and those types of things. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to is uh, where they're coming from. So wisdom and folly are both communicating from a place. The text says that wisdom is communicating from the heights. Um, Some of the other translations will say from the highest of heights. And some commentators would say that uh, the idea that wisdom would be communicating from the highest place or the heights is, is sort of the, saying that wisdom is, is representing God. The highest place in the city would be where the temple would be. And then folly uh, is this idea that it's communicating from the highest places but in the doorway, a seat at the highest places where kind of she doesn't belong. And so you get the idea that, that wisdom is God in his rightful place. So choosing wisdom and seeking out wisdom is seeking out God in his rightful place. And folly and choosing folly is seeking out things that are imitators of God, that, that are there, that we put up where God should be, but don't quite measure up if you're really to scrutinize it. And if you're Israel, this makes a lot of sense. This, this teaching, this instruction makes a lot of sense because the temptation for Israel over and over again was to settle for something less than God. Settle for something that appeared to meet their needs, but really wasn't the, the authentic thing. So uh, they were tempted to worship these pagan gods. So if you can imagine if there's a drought and God has called you to trust him, but this pagan God says he's a God of fertility and a God of, of plenty, then you worship him because he seems to meet the apparent needs. And the temptation for Israel was to reject God for something that seemed to be good. And the same thing is true for us as Christians. The temptation is for us to, to live our lives and reject God for things that seem to be better at the time. It's momentary. It seems to fill a present need. And we, re, we reject and we forget that God is called and the wise man is called his son to trust in the Lord in everything. Lean on the Lord in everything. Don't forget God. Don't forget God. Trust God in all situations. So there's a little bit we can learn about having a wise life and a foolish life just from figuring out what, what, where they're communicating from. Folly is often the thing, foolish things are often the things that seem right, that look good, appear to meet a present need, or appear to meet a felt need, but they don't quite measure up to God. They're they're kind of the almost, but they are not God. And so the challenge for us as Christians is to to scrutinize and be vigilant and analyze everything that we do. It can almost seem like the task is exhausting, but the call of Christians is that you're choosing between life and choosing between death, and so you definitely don't want death, so you need to put in the effort and the work and the energy and the time to scrutinize your decisions, to ask for help in what you're doing so that you don't choose folly over wisdom, because folly's gonna try and look a lot like wisdom. It also gives us insight into how the enemy works. 
If you've ever read the Screwtape Letters, you've seen the deviousness and the deceptive nature of which C.S. Lewis describes demons and how they work. That they imitate and closely try to align with what God is saying, but they're just different enough to pull you away from him. And in the same way, folly and foolishness is very deceptive, but it also imitates God in a lot of ways tries to lure people in. And so the call for Christians and the call for believers, the call for people who love God is to be alert and to be vigilant. Scripture elsewhere describes the enemy like a a roaring lion who's just waiting, waiting to pounce. We're always called to be vigilant and look and see, is the enemy behind this? Am I being careful in my decision-making? So a wise life is one that's lived with care, one that's lived with effort, one that's lived with vigilance. Sometimes it can be easy to to, to view it like this. So a wise person is active in the pursuit of God. They're looking and seeking for the grain that they can follow along and a passive person or a foolish person just lets life happen to them. And that's just not really the call of wisdom and fault, the call of wisdom. Um, the other thing is to look at what they offer. So wisdom and folly in the, the call is, is exactly the same, but what they offer is incredibly different. So um, Wisdom offers, uh, she slaughtered her beast, she has mixed her wine, she has set her table and sent out young women to call from the highest places in town. So you have this picture of her like pre- preparing food, preparing a meal, going to great efforts to make this setting something that's an invitation for other people. And then you have Folly who says she sits at the door of her house, she takes a seat in the highest places, calling to those who pass by, she says stolen water is sweet and bread eaten is secret is pleasant. So you have this juxtaposition of the offerings of wisdom as something that has effort and time and energy in it, and the offerings of folly is quick and easy. And that's something I think we should pay, pay attention to because much of what we desire in our culture is the quick and easy. We want our burgers under a certain, like, in two minutes, and we want our Amazon orders delivered in an hour. Like, the fact that Amazon can do that is kind of crazy. But think about this. We want the quick and easy. And that's not necessarily wrong, but we need to understand the method by which we pursue wisdom. If we, if we only want the quick and easy, then we lose a good theology of work. And the reason why that's important is um, because sometimes we believe that work is a bad thing. Oftentimes we spend much of our life doing whatever we can to accumulate as much wealth as possible so that we can get to a point where we can then do nothing. That's retirement, right? That's often what retirement is pitched at. Work, 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 so you can get to a point where you don't have to do anything. And, and we believe that is the dream. And sometimes we picture heaven as this place where we just go to heaven and we do nothing. And how great it will be, we'll just do nothing. But that's not, that's not how God has designed the word. In fact, if you look in Genesis, so Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3, you can turn with me there. We read Genesis chapter 3, um, Verse 17, this is God who pronounces the curse over Adam after a result of eating the fruit. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sometimes we read, we read this part of Genesis and we think, okay, work is bad. Things that require a lot of energy are bad. Things that require effort are bad because that's a result of sin. If something's difficult, it must be because it's not working right. It's not working the way God had set it up. But we forget that in the beginning of Genesis chapter one, 
when God creates Adam and Eve, he commissions them, sort of gives, speaks sort of their role and identity over them. He says this in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves over the earth. The idea that you would subdue something and have dominion over it implies that you would work. Essential in the nature of God's creation is that work is very much a part of what we do. In fact, Proverbs will counsel that idleness and laziness are bad things. And so to get to a position where you're not doing anything is actually something that would be incredibly foolish because it leaves room for the enemy to come in and provide you with something to do that would lead you away from God. And so the counsel of the wise person is to say, hey, things that take time and energy and effort are actually sometimes really worth doing. And I I think the, the most relevant way, at least for me, that this plays out is prayer. I want prayer to be really easy. I want to sit down and grab a journal or just think in my head and pray to God and have God speak to me or have a meaningful encounter with God in prayer. And I don't want it to take time. Because when things take time and things are difficult, we often say no to them when we stop doing them. And that's really dangerous. But what scripture counsels people is that prayer is something that we should do. We should wait patiently on the Lord. Listen to him, spend time with him. He's worth pursuing. If we don't have a good theology of work, then we we believe that everything that requires our effort or energy or our time is bad and we should just do nothing. And scripture counsels against that and says that's foolishness to do nothing, to be idle. Probably the person I think that, off, that does this, that encapsulates this idea the best, the person who grabs this idea and communicates it really well is Paul. So in, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's talking about the efforts and the ways in which he goes about working. Um, well, where am I? Which, it's the green, yep. I have little sticky notes and they're color-coded and green is 1 Corinthians. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what Paul says about work and about the effort we should put into pursuing God. Starting in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. The NIV translation says, I make it my slave. Can you get the weight of which Paul is communicating? I make my body my slave so I won't be disqualified from receiving the prize. And for Paul, the prize, the prize is Jesus. He considers the prize, the greatness of who God is, and he says he's worth every effort I might give for him. Now the danger, at least in communicating this message, is you get you, instead of a a good theology of work, you get something called a works-based theology where the things that you do then produce your lot, then produce fruit in your life. And that's kind of the danger of reading Proverbs as a promise. If you do these things, then God will do this thing. And so the idea is not that we do that, but we look at who God is, the creator of the world, and we consider his worth. And then we pursue him based off that worth. And if you truly believe that God is the creator of the universe, he's worth getting up early in the morning for. He's worth sacrificing other things to spend time with. He's worth waiting on to hear from. Paul considered the prize of Jesus and said that it was worth it. As we were uh, commissioning and sort of transitioning our eighth grade students up to high school, that was my encouragement to them. And it's funny because that's my encouragement to them, but I, I preach it to myself because I need to be reminded that I must always be considering who Jesus is. Every day we need to get up and say, okay, is God worth my time and energy? Is he work, worth my effort and my energy? And he is. Uh, and the wise person considers 
who God is and gives time and energy and effort. But the foolish person settles for the quick and easy, settles for, for the thing that's less than that. Than that. Um, so uh, sometimes there's a tendency to treat God as sort of a, a safety net instead of being actively pursuing him. So it's kind of like not studying for a test and then going to take your test and praying that God will give you an A. <laughs> Right? That's not a way we should live our lives as Christians. We should always be pursuing him. He's worth pursuing. And not just relying on God to be the safety net that'll catch you when you fall. He will catch you. But we shouldn't treat God like a safety net. We should put time and effort and energy into learning more about him because he's worth it. And that looks like diving into the disciplines of the Christian life. So seeking after him in prayer, seeking after him in studying his word, seeking after him in community and fasting and all of these things. I, uh, I have, my best friend went to Montana for this, uh, to this place. It was like a spiritual retreat center. And it was designed to sort of help people focus on God and get into good habits of silence and solitude, to get them focused back on the disciplines of seeking after the Lord. And I remember he came back and he said something really interesting because I noticed a change in his behavior and he was, he was different incredibly different. And what he said has stuck with me. He said, you know, we think the disciplines of seeking after God are, are good things to do. Oh, it's, it's good to read your Bible. It's really good to pray sometimes. It's good to, to seek after God. It's good to say no to other things for community, for God, and for worship. He says they're absolutely necessary. Almost with tears in his eyes. He said, we just don't get it. They're necessary. You cannot live the Christian life without seeking after God. You're just letting life happen to you if you do that. The wise person understands that seeking after God is tapping into the grain of life, and that means putting effort and energy into time into that. And that doesn't mean that you're going to get blessed more by the work that you do. That's not how God views you. You're not going to be loved more by God by the amount of Bible reading that you do. That's not how it works. That's just not the case. But it does mean that we consider how amazing Jesus is, what he has done for us. This is, this is the gospel, When you decide to follow Jesus, you consider what he's done for you and you make a decision to give him your life. But oftentimes, we settle for knowing a lot about Jesus rather than knowing a lot, rather than knowing Jesus himself. And we become people who bump around Jesus rather than actually know him. And so the challenge for all Christians is to seek after Jesus. Um, Okay, so that's all really great. And I think most people outside of the Bible would get that a wise life is one that's worth putting effort and energy and time into and a foolish life is one that's lazy. I think that's generally, most people would understand that wisdom is that and foolishness is this outside of scripture. But here's, here's where the, the challenge becomes. We are afraid of looking foolish. And that really is the counsel of, of the book of Proverbs. Avoid foolishness, avoid looking foolish. Those things are bad. So we, we take that to heart. And everybody takes it to heart. We're afraid of looking foolish. When we get up in the morning, we put clothes on and we think, okay, not these pants because I'll look silly in front of that person, not this shirt because it makes me look this way. We're afraid of looking foolish to other people. And that operate, that's the way we operate our life and drive our life. But the question really becomes, who are we letting be our source of wisdom and define what wisdom and folly is? Um, another example, so this weekend, uh, we had our junior hires for a retreat and we did this game that was uh, like a training game and the object of the game is you, you put everyone, it's about 26 of them, on a tarp. That's about 12 feet by 12 feet. And they have to flip the tarp over without stepping off the tarp. And it's a little complicated. It's a really fun game. I enjoy my job as a junior high pastor. This game can take anywhere from 45 minutes to two hours for them to figure out how to do it. So it's really fun. They're, most of them, they're all here this morning. I'm sure they would tell you that they loved it. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Uh, <laughs> Here's the thing. I, so there was a couple of moments where I pulled people out and I said, hey, 
come here. And I pulled them out. I said, here's how you do it. Here's exactly how you do it. And then I would send them back in. And this isn't any fault of any individual student. Every person operates this way. It's very difficult to know the right thing and speak up and do the right thing. Almost every time when someone was in there, like when the crowd was speaking and they knew the right thing to do, instead of looking foolish or looking awkward, they didn't say anything. And that's not a fault of any particular student. That's all of us. There are many times in which we are so afraid of looking foolish that we won't act out our wisdom that God has given us. And wisdom is not just an intellectual agreement. It requires us to act. Um, And I do this. This is... uh, I mean, everyone does this, but me particularly, my definition of what is wise and what is foolish is so often dictated by what I believe my father would think is foolish. So there are many things I do because I think doing the wrong thing would be foolish. And that's not bad. Proverbs even says, raise up your children, train them up. That's me being a good son, following after what my dad has modeled and taught me. But there are many things that my father has modeled and taught me that are not in line with the wisdom of God. And so I don't do those things because I believe my father would would think that foolish. And I live my life by fear of looking foolish. And that's a really scary part. And the question becomes, who are you letting define what's, what's wisdom and what's folly in your life? Um, Paul, man, he's great at this stuff. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, chapter 1. So let's turn there. Let's read what Paul has to say about wisdom. 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us, it's being saved It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The sobering reminder in our pursuit of wisdom is that we don't just pursue wisdom for the sake of being smart people or intellectual people. We pursue wisdom because we believe wisdom is an attribute of God and we let God define what's, wi- what's wise and what's foolish. And we operate in that standard. And what that often requires is that you will look foolish in front of other people. That's just a part of the Christian life. You believe that a man came to the earth, claimed to be God, was God, died on a cross, and rose again. That looks foolish to the world. That looks foolish. The very core of what you often profess every Sunday morning looks foolish to the world. Your worldview that operates around that looks foolish, and we need to be comfortable with that. The ways in which you act and are called to act out of pursuing God and living a wise life most in step with him will look foolish in the world. And if you let the fear of the world's definition of wisdom and folly rule your life, you won't act. And the call for Christians is to look and say, what ways, what ways am I letting what I think, what the world defines as foolish and wise push me and motivate me and move me? In what ways am I seeking after God for his definition of what's wise and what's foolish. Um, Jesus himself, Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 
says that he's the embodiment of wisdom. So Solomon was pictured as this really great and wise guy, and he asked God for wisdom. And so people would come from all over the place to hear from the wisdom of Solomon. And the Jews are asking Jesus for a sign in chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12. They're asking, give us a sign that you're the son of God, that you're this Messiah. And Jesus says, you're not going to get a sign. But I'll tell you this, Solomon, who is really wise, one who's greater than he is here, and he's pointing to himself. Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. And so if we're asking where we get wisdom, how we get wisdom, how we avoid folly, we realign what wisdom is and what folly is based off what God says and we pursue the heck out of Jesus because he's the embodiment of wisdom. And that's, that's something that we're not meant to do alone. We said earlier that the, the, the outline of the book of Proverbs is written from a father to a son. That is one generation reaching to another generation and saying, hey, we desperately need each other. We desperately need each other. We need each other so that we can mutually encourage each other, instruct each other in our experience and how we've seen God move so we can direct each other back to God's word so we can encourage each other as we fight and give energy and effort to pursue God and pursue the disciplines of knowing God. We need each other. I said earlier, but you met people this morning in those four or five minutes that we had before we started singing together. A wise thing to do is to say that we need each other and pursue a relationship. My relationship with Jeff that I feel like I've so, so just profited from is one that is built on relationship. And it was as simple as you like coffee, I like coffee. Let's, I have a new bag. Do you want to try something? That's how it started. That's literally, I went over to Jeff's house because I had a bag of coffee and he knew he liked it. And we started having coffee together. And our relationship was built off mutual interest. But what I found is that I have learned so much from him. And the crazy thing is that I had a conversation with Jeff before this, and what Jeff told me was that he's learned from me, which is wild, because I'm really foolish, and I make a lot of dumb decisions, but there's a mutual benefit, I don't know what I'm trying to say, there's a mutual growth there that happens. You met someone this morning. How can you pursue a relationship and grow together? If we actually desire to be the church, we shouldn't just be people who come here on Sunday mornings and sit in the pews and don't know who we're worshiping with. Don't invest. See, folly says, let life happen to you. Do you come to church on a Sunday morning and just let church happen to you? Or are you investing in this? Are you looking at ways you can get connected? We talked about TLC as this way in which we demonstrate the love of Jesus to kids who nobody demonstrates love at all. Are you pursuing that? Are you stepping out in faith and saying, it's worth my time and energy and effort to give to God, to give in pursuit of God? Is it worth waking up an hour earlier in the morning because it's worth just at least starting your day reading his word or staying up an hour later or calling your friend when you need help? Are you letting life happen to you? Are you letting church happen to you? I don't want to sound condescending because much of this I preach to myself. In the same way that I, I desperately need more people like Jeff in my life to speak wisdom from scripture and help me along my path in the same way everybody needs the church because it points us to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word that you saw fit to design the world with wisdom and that you have made that wisdom available to us. We're grateful, God, that this wisdom is embodied in Christ and that we can obtain wisdom and avoid folly by seeking after Christ. God, I ask today that you would put it on the hearts of people in this room to seek Christ on their own and to seek Christ in community with the help of other people and with the purpose of knowing you better. 
It's your name we pray. Amen.